Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. My guest today is Richard Walker, Managing Director of Iceland Foods. He's at the helm of supermarket stores, the length and breadth of the nation, and a family business with a family motto of doing it right. It's helping position Iceland as a force for good with an environmental mission at its heart. It's also the inspiration for Richard's new book, The Green Grocer, One Man's Manifesto for Corporate Activism. Passionate about purpose and with big plans for the future, Richard is often cited as one of the most exciting and innovative business leaders in the UK. Richard, welcome to Changemakers. I'm going to give you a quote from The Sun, if I may, in 2018. It described you as young, keen and full of bright ideas. Is that a fair, uh, is that a fair description? Oh, that's amazing. Did The Sun say that? Yeah, well, that was, that was, that was two years ago. Since then, uh, we've had a global pandemic, so I don't need, certainly don't feel so young anymore. Now, you've been through it. I mean, we'll get on to the lessons of that. But I think, you know, it's an extraordinary story, the Iceland story, is, as a family business, but also a values-based business, which I think comes across so strongly in, in, um, in your advice to listeners, doing it right, expect nothing, work hard, celebrate, and never, ever, ever give up. Give us a little sense of um, what's going on behind that in terms of, obviously, this, this very strong culture um, and values uh, base that you have. Yeah, I, I, I'm. I think that's the uh, the legacy of my dad looming large there because uh, he's obviously a, a self made entrepreneur uh, who who started with nothing, uh, really um, quite uh, quite working well, very working class roots um, from from Yorkshire. And um, that that quote, never, ever, ever give up is uh, is a favorite one of my dad's. And I think it's testament to um, his persistence and his will to win as well. Um, mm. And, and every, everything that he's he's achieved in the 50 years of Iceland, which is a, obviously an extraordinary uh, story in itself. Because I, I, I thought, I mean, in terms of those those quotes is that, I mean, you're often positioned as an idealist in terms of the things you want to achieve but you know everything here is about realism isn't it in terms of the Mm. expect nothing work hard um don't give up do it right (laughs) yeah that no that's true um or as my dad tells me uh in his yorkshire action accent stop saving the world and get in the shops (laughs) i i think i you know i think there is that constant tension and walking that tightrope, isn't there, of, of purpose and profit. And of course, I'm fully aware of um, my inherited privilege and the fact that none of none of this purpose-led activism that I'm becoming known for would be possible uh, if we hadn't been cool-headed, um, commercially savvy over the last 50 years. And it's it's something that I haven't quite, you know, got straight in my own head, of course. But I mean, you, you mentioned your dad, Sir Malcolm Walker, and he is also someone that you will you will talk about as a great inspiration, both, both of your parents. Um, and, you know, the, I suppose really for you, what's very different in this story is that you are working in a family business. You, you, you worked in, in the property uh, world before this. But in terms of coming into the business, what it means for you to be in your own family's business, and I suppose the sense of obligation, the sense of legacy, the sense of responsibility that you feel now um, with, with, you know, with, with your sort of leadership taking the lead, I guess. T- talk us through that. 
Yeah, so I think um, one of the best decisions I, I made was was not try and emulate dad and follow in his footsteps when I graduated from uni in 2001. And I was very keen to sort of plow my own furrow. And I think that was as much to prove it to myself as well as other people that I could make my own way in the world. So I qualified as a chartered surveyor, totally different industry. I worked in London for a couple of years and then set up a, a property fund, firstly in Poland, where I lived and worked full time for a number of years, and then uh, back in London. Uh, so, so I had an entire different career for um, over 10 years before I joined Iceland in my early 30s. And I think by the time I got to that age, I'd sort of grown in confidence and probably developed a, a thick enough skin, which you do need um, as the, the son of a founder, um, to finally give uh, selling frozen peas a, a go for a living. What was the most difficult thing about that, though, in terms of coming back into a business where there are other dynamics at play, na- namely, I guess, family? Yeah, I mean, it was um, it was very hard. I, I was firmly thrown out of my comfort zone, having sort of developed a name for myself in property. And um, whilst I did have a passing understanding of the business that comes from sitting around the, the dining table talking as a family as I was growing up, of course, I didn't know anything about the nuts and bolts of retail. And, and therefore, that first year in, a sh- in working in shops in London was absolutely essential. And uh, it was something that I suggested and was very keen to do to learn about the business from the bottom up. I was going to say there was there was no silver spoon here. I mean, you 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 really <laughs> did. I mean, you were shelf stacking. You were a cashier. You were involved in all aspects of the business's operations before you got into the rarefied heights of management and leadership. Yeah, because respect is is earned. And uh, I think just rolling up my sleeves and getting my head down and getting on with it was the, the best possible thing I could have done. And do you know what? It was one of the best years of my life and very humbling because you appreciate just how damn hard our 30,000 employees work every day and also some of the challenges that they face, not only daft decisions that are uh, thrown down upon high from head office, but also you know some of the day-to-day problems in terms of shoplifting and the like. Uh, it, it is a very tough job and the, the respect I have for them is, is limited. D- did your affection for the business grow because of that in terms of the relationship? Yeah. Massive. How, how, did, how did that happen? Yeah, 100%. Um, just, just through... You know, the early mornings, the bread deliveries, uh, the, the late nights, the parties after work. Um, I, I genuinely made some friends for life. And, uh, um, you know, my, my first store manager, um, who is one of the best store managers in the business, you know, he, he taught me so much about retail that you can put 20% on the sales, even though all of the uh, prices are, are set centrally and the merchandising is. It's all about leading a team and motivating them and inspiring them. And, uh, you know, it was it was just a fabulous experience that I think anyone, certainly any politician should go through, because, of course, we're a perfect barometer of modern day Britain, really, in terms of. I suppose you you would pass the test of can you tell us what the what the cost of a pint of milk is? I won't (laughs) won't embarrass you, Richard, to ask you. But I mean, uh, that's often what politicians aren't able to answer that question, are they? But 25p, which is the cheapest pint of milk in the country. 25p. There we have it. It's a free advertisement for Iceland on, on the show. So since becoming MD, I guess the thing that has caught the market's attention has been the environmental commitment that you have made um, with the business. And I'm going to ask you to talk talk us through what's going on behind you on, on this interview. There is a, 
you know, a massive evocative image. And I'll, I'll, maybe you can start with that. But in, in terms of this, this, this sort of, I guess, quest to become a more purpose-led player, talk us through the sort of the, the early parts of that in terms of, was there a tipping point moment where you thought this is something we could do? And what was it? As a business, we have a, a long, proud track record of, of uh, doing it right, as we, as we like to say internally, which I guess is our own take on a sustainability strategy. Uh, in fact, Dad was the first retailer anywhere in the world to ban GM foods back in the early noughties. And he was roundly ridiculed at the time, but then every other retailer followed. It's made the UK's food almost completely GM free to this day. Um, been a long-term member of Greenpeace, and also, I have a deep love for the natural world, which again comes through my privilege, having been able to travel around the world, but also closer to home, having two lovely daughters who love nothing better than you know going out into the Cheshire countryside and, and looking at the bugs and bees that that are on their very doorstep. And you know, I want to do everything I possibly can to try and protect that legacy for them. And um, I'm a very keen climber and surfer in my spare time, and and therefore very aware that supermarkets are a huge cause of the problem through our supply chains the amount of plastic we produce and therefore i'm very keen to try and use the business as a platform uh, to do everything i can to help make the world a better place so for listeners benefit richard is currently sat with a massive orangutan above 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 his head um t- talk us, i mean that, that as i suppose i think this is for, um, about palm oil talk us through i guess how you brought this this commitment to life. And let's start with that, that sort of um, fabulous sort of evocative image. Yeah, they're great. They're they're such amazing animals. You know, they're, they're um, our closest relatives in the wild and yet we're, we're killing them off. Um, They're now on the critically endangered list and it's all for palm oil that ends up in 50% of all supermarket products. And the tipping point for me on this particular issue came when I visited palm oil plantations in West Kalimantan and uh, Indonesian Borneo and saw firsthand from my own eyes just what the runaway demand for palm oil is doing to the planet. Um, the rainforests are the crown jewels of our biodiversity, not just orangutans, of course, they're such a symbolic animal, but many others in between. They, they contain 50% of all our, our plants and animals, um, and yet they're only 2% of the Earth's surface. Um, and yet we're destroying them at a rate of 146 football pitches every single hour in Indonesia alone. Um, so we're only 2% of the market, but we wanted to do a really disruptive, eye-catching campaign that would kind of raise awareness of the issue. And we, it took us a long time to do it, but we removed palm oil from all of our own label products. So, and I think that for a lot of people in leadership positions that are that will listen to a story like this. They'll say, yeah, led from the front, done the right thing. Um, and you can see the results. But you've also had, you know, you talked about being a mountaineer. You've had your own mountain range in this sort of relationship, I guess, with customers and colleagues and the ability to to bring the market with you. How How hard a journey is this to sort of, you know, move the business in this direction and win the hearts and minds of the people you want to you want to, to come shopping uh, at Iceland? Yeah, I mean, from a customer's point of view, what, what really drives me is to democratise environmentalism. Normally, it's the preserve of Waitrose customers who can afford to pay more for ethical products um, with, with time and money to spare. Um, but of course, many of our customers might only have 25 quid a week to spend and, and they don't have that luxury. They don't not care about these issues. 
they've just got far more important things to worry about. And therefore, if we can come up with solutions that are cost neutral, um, I think that really is game changing um, because because we can genuinely uh, create scalable uh, solutions. Um, before our palm oil campaign, no one was talking about palm oil. Afterwards, uh, Google searches of the phrase palm oil went up 10,000%. And everyone was talking about palm oil and it drove the industry to new pledges on zero deforestation. I think from our staff's perspective, they're very proud of everything we've done. And, and it's a big part of why people come to work for us. Mm. I mean, I think another part of this story has been your ability to capture attention and imagination. I mean, so much so that your 2018 um, Christmas ad was banned on the on political advertising grounds, as, as I understand it, in the, in the sense that this was not just about... Um, you know, who shops at Iceland. This was about, you know, causes that might well be seen as, as those of political parties and NGOs. I mean, was that part of the strategy? It wasn't because I'm not that clever, um, but it was a, a genuine case of... Claim it, Richard. Of, of, <laughs> of, it was a genuine case of serendipity. And uh, you're right, the ad got banned because it was a, a repurposed Greenpeace ad and deemed too political. And very quickly, we put it out online and very quickly, this thing snowballed uh, to, the, to the point where it's now had almost 100 million views. And it's now the most watched Christmas ad of all time, even though it was banned. So it also kind of rewrote some of the rules on paid uh, TV ad spend as well. Um, and I think, you know, it was a, a blatantly emotive um, story, a cartoon of a young girl in an orangutan. But it was something that really captured people's attention. And that's the point. It's how you package up and um, uh, uh, sort of sell these issues to people so that they can relate to them. Uh, my dad, the GM debate that I mentioned, he coined the phrase Frankenstein foods. And it's about how you, you message and nuance uh, quite complicated debates uh, to, to customers. I mean, in, in the US, there's a group of firms which are called the firms of endearment, um, like, like, like the old movie. But the firms of endearment are businesses like Salesforce, um, businesses where, um, I guess, the ethical stance of the business and, and its founders and leaders are very much under the spotlight. And, of course, I, I think your story is one of Britain's versions of those firms of endearment because, you know, the media are often very quick to jump on the perceived cul-de-sacs or the perceived, you know, sort of setbacks in, in this journey. Um, I just wondered from the perspective of actually trying to see this agenda through, how hard is the environment for you in making progress? And does it matter in the long term in terms of what it is you're trying to achieve? I think it does matter because uh, corporate Britain you know, the corporations around the world are doing nowhere near enough. But is it any wonder? Because particularly in this country, we do have a culture of um, being cynical and uh, and trying to trip up companies that are trying to do well. Now, part of that is self-inflicted. If you look at the litany of, you know, corporate scandals over recent years and also a generation of, of greenwash that people are sick and tired of. And I think now the margin for error, error is is so slight because people can call out um, uh, anything that's inauthentic um, on social media, and that's all amplified, and and uh, companies have to navigate that. But I think it's so important that companies do stand up and speak out on issues that they care about and their customers do. Is the pandemic a game changer 
in in this. I mean, a lot of people will talk about the fact of the reset or to renew that actually something very different might emerge from this. In terms of how your experience has evolved over the course of the last year and what that might tee you up for um, in the period ahead, do you, do you feel positive or, or negative about, the, I guess, the the operational experience of trying to run and grow your business during these times? Yeah, I think it's easy to despair, but actually I, I feel nothing but positivity. Um, I think the pandemic has been the, the warning shot from nature that we needed. And hopefully it is a, a moment where we can finally join those dots between human health, uh, nature's diminishment and climate change. And if you look at everything that's happened over the last uh, year from China pledging carbon neutrality by 2060 to Biden winning the White House to Boris's template plan for the climate um, to all of the investment capital that is now flooding into green investments to over uh, 10,000 jurisdictions around the world, citizens standing up and declaring climate emergencies to school strikes. I think there is now this unstoppable tidal wave of change that is coming whether we like it or not. And therefore, to future-proof any business, to be relevant to those Gen Zs who might not yet have any money, but certainly want to identify themselves with brands with a purpose, it's absolutely essential on the front foot for this. Which I suppose is why um, now is a very good time to be publishing a book. And you have um, a wonderfully titled book, the Green Gracer, One Man's Manifesto for Corporate Activism, coming out um, during the spring. And I suppose if there was a message to um, people in corporates that are thinking, yeah, I'd love us to become more active, what, what's the learnable lesson from your story and the Iceland story in terms of what you can do to take control of your organisation to be part of that better future? I think, it, I think it's easy for anyone to kind of shrug their shoulders and look the other way and put something in the too difficult drawer. Uh, but the reality is we all have a role to play and, and we can all make a difference. And I know that's hackneyed, but it's, it's true, particularly smaller businesses, because obviously SMEs represent 90% plus of the global economy. Therefore, it's even more important that they take action. Iceland is a bit of an unlikely environmental hero. Most people would would assume it would be M&S or someone like that. But actually, we've managed to galvanize our, our 30,000 workforce and our 5 million customers around issues that historically have not been issues that um, real working class people um, get involved in. And, and I'm very proud of that. Um, so I think uh, businesses have a, an obligation not just to finger point because when the finger pointing starts, the thinking stops. And actually just look at their supply chains, look at their impact, seek to reduce it. And then most importantly, advocate, because some issues are, are too great to, uh, to uh, sort of keep to yourselves. And I think therefore, you know, some of these big existential issues, it's all about collaboration and, sh- and sharing best practice and ideas. Mm. And I suppose to pull those big existential issues down to day-to-day experiences, um, people who can't afford to fill their shopping basket, huge issues of, of poverty and deprivation that are gripping um, the country and indeed are expected to grip it further in the in the months and possibly years ahead. Um, I, I get it on the sustainability and the environmental um, credentials. 
What about the community credentials for, for Iceland? How, how do you feel about the work you need to do with the community you serve? Yeah, well, the, I mean, this is something that, in a way, we're, we're even more in tune and passionate about because we are absolutely embedded within those communities we serve. And, and our store locations do overlay almost exactly with the government areas of high deprivation. Um, so we do serve a, a lot of uh, struggling communities around the UK and we see the problems getting worse uh, from home, homelessness to the shambolic kind of rollout of universal credits to the alarming rise in food banks uh, to, to the hollowing out of our high streets. And I think if you look at Britain, a G7 country, one of the richest nations on the planet, it's an absolute tragedy that we have almost four and a half million kids now officially living in poverty. And I think business capitalism has got to be very, very careful. Um, and we need to change how we how we do things um, so that we don't leave uh, others behind. And, and the growing inequality is, is something that should alarm all of us. It strikes me there is a saying, um, I think it was a Chicago school of business, wasn't it? The, the, the business of business is business. Um, you, you seem to be so much more than that, you know, in terms of the, the causes that you back, um, the things that you do. Um, in, a, in another generation, it, it sounds like you could well have been a political activist or a, or a campaigner um, in, in, a, in, a, in an NGO. But you found your home in business, um, in, in finding a way to make a difference. Is that a fair reflection of your role and how you see it? Absolutely. And I say that as one of Iceland's uh, shareholders. You know, the, the, the fact that that band ad uh, about Rangtang did nothing for sales at the time is of no consequence and it was an unmitigated success, I believe, um, because it helped genuinely change uh, an issue of, of deforestation. And that's just one tiny element of a broader view of what business is for. And you're right, that old Milton Freeman view that business is only there to serve a, um, for its uh, shareholders is, is should be killed off for good. And actually, the realisation that, that business is now a vast ecosystem serving many, many different stakeholders. And you look at Iceland... You know, we're a, we're a community activist, uh, we're a philanthropist, we're a taxpayer, we're an employer. Yes, we're a, we're a profit centre for our shareholders, but we are so many other things in between. And I think if you look at all the Edelman Trust surveys and, and all of the research that's coming out now, uh, the public demands, expects business to step up and take action on issues where perhaps the government has been too slow on. Do, do you think... Um... This is where the real magic of being part of a family business kicks in as well in terms of the independence that it gives you from external shareholders, perhaps, or the um, the legacy of being part of an organization where generations matter. Um, I mean, you see that in the kind of big U.S. families in terms of the philanthropic angle that often accompanies very big corporate stories. But I wonder... From an, op- an operational perspective, being in a private family-run business, is, is, that, is that part of what's given you your license to operate, do you think? Yeah, I, I think that is a really uh, fair, good observation. And it's true. You know, if I was the boss of Tesco, I'd probably have been sacked by now uh, for pledging 
to eliminate plastic by the end of 2023 because it's adding millions of pounds of cost into our business. But we can take a longer term view and we don't have to constantly chase quarterly profits to please city shareholders. Um, now, that sounds very self-serving uh, that, you know, private ownership is best. But actually, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with public cap capital. It's just how long term that capital is in nature. And I think that is a huge problem now that when you consider the average shareholding on the London FTSE is, is something like 23 seconds. You know, I don't think they have much consideration or care for um, CSR, ESG, etc. Um, so, yeah, it does give us a lot more bandwidth. We can taper in cost over the long term. We can be more radical and we are ultimately only answerable to our, ourselves. It's also a huge burden of responsibility. I'm acutely aware that, you know, I shouldn't be here as MD if I'm not good enough to do the job. And, you know, uh, being, being private can have its downsides. It can make some people uh, go lazy or, you know, if they, they don't have to... Um, answer to outside shareholders. So we always have to um, maintain that discipline and keep ourselves in check and, and manage ourselves as professionally as possible. But, but I, I sometimes think that, that, that family business stories are, are a bit of the untold part of the, you know, the, the gems, if you like, of the British commercial crown, I guess. Let's think of the, the metaphor. But, you know, when, when you think about a lot of the stories we hear about are startups, younger businesses, they are... Um, the business gusto deliveroos, whoever it might be that are are out there, but when you think about families like like the Timson family, yeah, uh, you think about Warburtons, you think about yeah. a lot of businesses where actually that connection with the generations is the superpower in terms of actually the the lineage the legacy that 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 kind of ability to sort of connect yeah, and you know my my view on kind of modern leadership ultimately you know forget sustainability or social issues it's about empathy and empathetic leadership and i think that's you know being a private family business it we allow that culture to permeate through our business um we don't say we're a family business we say we're a business of families and that is so true because we have mums and dads and daughters um who are working for us and work, work for us for over 30 years and that is a a unique culture that many people are attracted to because it gives us this irreverent, irreverent style, this maverick culture, uh, this, this disruptive culture that, that I think a lot of people find so attractive and, and can genuinely um, help change things. I mean, I was thinking about my, my last question to you and I was thinking there's so many different routes I could go. I mean, you know, you, you've got a talent as a surfer and as, as a mountain climber. I mean, I, I, I believe you've, you've climbed mountains that had never been climbed before. Um, you know, lots of sort of areas we could go and metaphors. But actually, the one place I wanted to sort of get your, your sort of final view on was, was on a recent blog post of yours where you reflected on the pandemic by saying, revert back to business as usual. Now, that really would be a tragedy. Let's finish there in terms of the compare and contrast and the point you were seeking to make in terms of what we should be wary for of and what it is we're playing for. Yeah, I mean, it, we, there, there are no greater stakes, of course, when you, when you consider how heavily we tread on the world and what footprints we're leaving. And I, I suppose what I was trying to say is that, you know, this is undoubtedly a turning point. And we've got to think in 20 years time when my kids are grown up, they'll look back to our generation and 
that'll be the moment where they'll they'll judge us and they'll say, well, they either genuinely did how they how they changed uh, how they do business and and uh, you know uh, so much pollution and uh, decarbonisation, etc., or they blew it because we just had a load of fiscal stimulus that reverted to business as usual, propping up you know heavily polluting industries, bad ways of doing business. And within 10 years, we were right back to where we were and we didn't seize that opportunity. And I think it is all about seizing the moment that this pandemic has hopefully taught us. Richard Walker, thank you very much for joining me on Changemakers. And for more stories of the power of purpose, the passion to make a difference and the secrets to realising potential, do join me for the next episode of Changemakers. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.